0: Hi Thrive Church, good to see all of you. We've got some sickness in the house, don't we? Oh my goodness. Uh, Sickness or just losing my mind, that could be the case. Uh, Anyway, yeah, we'll have a chance to pray about that here in a little bit, um, so stay tuned on that one, but I am so glad that you're here, the hardcore, that's what you are, I'm grateful that you're here. But here's the deal, if you're sick, please don't share that love, stay home, we want you to, no, we don't don't necessarily want to. Pass it around. Okay, uh, let me start here. So the last couple of weeks, we've been working through this kind of visual model um, uh, that we call the discipleship triangle. In a, in a way, um, this has been kind of our guide uh, where we're trying to pick apart the pieces of, of, the, of the triangle. Because I think it helps us understand what it is and what it means to actually follow Jesus in today's world—not in ancient times, but in today's, in today's world—and uh, this this little model has been really useful for me personally, and and uh, other people that I know have kind of adopted it, and um, and so I, I hope you hope you found this thing helpful. The idea here, though, is that Jesus gave us a commission. He gave us a a reason for existence, a a mission. And that's to make disciples, not converts. There is a difference between those two things. And I think that it's easier to make converts than it is to make disciples. Why? Because it takes time. And we live in a microwave generation and we just want to see instantaneous results and hey, you're a convert, good deal. Uh, I've uh, lived out the great commission. Really? Maybe not. So, if we're taking the idea of discipleship seriously, meaning being followers of Jesus, there are some implications to that, I think. Um, That means, first and foremost, we have to learn how to be better disciples ourselves. Now I'm stepping on toes. (laughs) And then we have to help other people find and follow Jesus too. But here's the thing, and I, I believe this with all my heart, I think that you have to learn how to be a disciple yourself before you can genuinely help other people become disciples. Does that make sense? I think there's a natural process to that. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, you you find new Christians are awesome. I mean, they're like barbarians. They just go out and they tell everybody. You know, that's really, it's kind of cool. But those of us who have been in church for a while, who have grown up with Scripture, whatever it happens to be, it takes us a little m- more time to, to get there, because we don't want to offend anybody, and look, here's the deal. The, I, the whole point to this is that to be a disciple yourself will eventually cause you to reproduce. Because I think that's just the natural order of things. And this, I think, helps us understand that a little bit more. So, if you remember, a couple weeks ago, we started talking about um, the lower part of the triangle, which is, which is yourself. You know, when we look at it, it's me. And, and we talked about the importance of self-awareness, and I still believe this to be the case: is that people who are self-aware tend to be a little more successful in life in general. In fact, um, some of you know this, but I have a kind of a side gig. I work with a, a company that does um, uh, interviews for ministry positions around the country, and very often when I come across a candidate who's not qualified. It, 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 it is directly attributable to their lack of self-awareness. And I've seen that time and time and time again, and you probably have too, although you may have called it something else. But there's a self-awareness that helps us to be a little more successful in life. And the other thing that we mentioned in this is that, look, in the body of Christ, we need you to be you. Nobody else can be you. Now that doesn't mean that the function that you have in the church can can be taken up by someone else. But as a body, we need every person to be who God made you to be. We need you to be you. And we need you to be more of you. Christians have an added nuance to self-awareness, however. There is another dimension or aspect to our identity. And it's, it's, simply, it's simply this. It's Ephesians chapter 1. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for, what's the word? Say it. Adoption to sonship and daughtership through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So not only do we have to have some self-awareness about about who we are and what our likes and dislikes are and, and how God wired us and all of that, but you must understand in the bottom left part of the triangle, you are adopted as a son or daughter of the living God. That is part of who you are. That adoption is crucial, as we'll see as we go along. This is an important component to it. And then we moved last week, and we talked about God being in the the lower right-hand part of that, that triangle. And adoption means something here. If you'll recall, it's a legal term um, where you quite literally become a legal part of another person's family. It's, a, it's an ancient term. Uh, we still practice it today. But <clears throat> the word that's been used, this idea of adoption, is a, is a, a Greek term that's, that's legal uh, in its origin. And, and what it means is that you become part of a bigger family. And that there's a certain amount of privilege that comes along with that. And here's where, where we find it. Uh, again, Ephesians chapter 1. When you believed you were marked in him with a seal. Uh, there's a bunch of interesting stuff related to that. Um, the promised Holy Spirit. Okay, so when you believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that seal who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance because only those who are sons and daughters get an inheritance. You see? This is important. The redemption of those who are God's possession. When you believed, when you became a Christian, when you said yes to Jesus, when you started following him, you were given a deposit to guarantee your inheritance. And it's it's the Holy Spirit. Does this make sense? Are you tracking with me on this one? I think this is absolutely crucial. And frankly, I think it's um, something that, as Christians, we we often miss. But then um, Paul, the writer of this letter, goes on and he says this in chapter 2. For through Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one Holy Spirit. So it's not that you just get the Holy Spirit, but that Holy Spirit actually opens up that channel so that you can actually talk with God, that you can actually connect with him in a very realistic sort of way. Not something in theory, not something on paper, not something that we imagine, but in a very real way, the Holy Spirit is the deposit and it gives you access to the Father. Now, as you kind of go through your life, how important is that? I think it's, like I said, crucial. And oh yeah, by the way, he's a good father, right? We, we figured that part out? He's not just your father, he's a good father. One of the things I've noticed over the years, um, maybe you have too, but um, very often the relationship that we have with our own fathers, we sometimes project on God. So if you've had an awful relationship with your father, it's no wonder that you kind of are a little concerned about you know, people talking about God the Father, right? That's called projection, and it's not real. God is a good father. If you, who are not necessarily the nicest people in the world, prone to sin like everybody else, if your kids come and ask you for certain things, don't you give them good things like bread and meat and whatnot? How much more, Jesus says, will your Father in Heaven give you good gifts? He's a good Father. Jesus nailed that point home for us. Now, you'll also notice here that um, all of this is found in the first few chapters of Paul's letter to Ephesians. And Let's put this in context. Paul was a New Testament writer. He was also a missionary. He was a He was a church planter, and the church at Ephesus was one of his churches. And so it's on the west coast of Turkey, um, not too far from the ocean. And um, he founded that church, and so he wrote a letter back to them. In fact, a lot of the letters that we read have to do with Ephesus. For instance, Timothy, first and second Timothy. Timothy was the pastor of the, the Ephesian church. And so much of what we read in Timothy has to do with Ephesus as well. So, major center of Christianity. But Paul here is writing to these individuals. And he goes on to write something else, and I want you to see this because I think this is really important. He says, in chapter 4, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And now we have the third angle of our triangle. Life. Because it's one thing to have faith in Jesus. It's one thing to be a Christian. It is something else entirely to be a disciple and live your life as such. To live with Jesus day in and day out. And Paul um, expends a considerable amount of ink fleshing out what this means, this life that's worthy of a calling. And we're going to talk about this today. We're going to talk about that third um, piece of the triangle. So let's jump into the text and see where this takes us because I think this is really interesting. And by the way, I would... Um, encourage you to actually sit down and read through the first. Well, read through Ephesians. You, should, you all need to read the Bible more anyway. So I'm giving you an assignment. Just read Ephesians. Um, but Ephesians chapter four is very pragmatic about living life um, as a disciple. But I want you to see some bits and pieces. I want to highlight some things. So um, chapter four, beginning with verse one, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. By com- um, completely uh, be completely humble. And gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Boy, that's hard sometimes because there's some people who just need a little more love than others, right? Mm hmm. Yeah. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is interesting. Unity comes up over and over and over again. But because you have the Holy Spirit, and other sons and daughters of God have the Holy Spirit, we can have unity. Unity does not necessarily mean agreement. In fact, Paul and, and Barnabas disagreed sharply about another, another individual in their circle of friends. They were still godly men, but they they disagreed on that. So unity is not the same thing as agreement. The, the point of unity, and it's something different, desperately need in the world today is the fact that I still love you even though I disagree with you on this. And I'm not going to necessarily break fellowship with you on this even though we disagree. And I think it's an important, um, important piece of discipleship. And he's saying this, look, through the bond of peace, you know, we have the Holy Spirit, so let's have some unity around that. And this sets the tone for the rest of, of of what he has to say about living life, pragmatically speaking, as a disciple of Jesus. He says, be humble and gentle and patience, and all of this is to to bring us towards this idea of unity. So there's an expectation here of what disciples are supposed to be like, what life with Jesus means. Um, Then I'm going to jump down to verse 11 because this really gets fascinating. Some of you have seen this before. In fact, I've preached on this before. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, that means pastors, and teachers. Um, if you take the, the first letter, it turns out to be a pest, A-P-E-S-T, a pest. I'm not sure what that means, but that's the way it turns out in English, right? And yes, sometimes pastors can be a pest, that's true. Okay, um, but, he, but Christ himself gave the apostles, And he gave the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers. And there's a purpose to this, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach, what's the word? Unity. Ah, interesting. This must be important. Unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and to become mature so there's there's these um, functions within the church we call it the fivefold ministry. This idea of um, uh, apest is, is often called the fivefold ministry. And what's fascinating to me is I am fairly certain this resides in every church at some level. Now m- a lot of times people don't know that they fit one of those those ministry functions within the church, but All of these things are, I believe, available in the church. We just don't necessarily acknowledge it. Um, And I think they reside here at Thrive, too. And this, uh, how the church is led and everyone is doing their part, and the whole point to this is to achieve maturity. Don't miss the ending piece of this. Yes, we're supposed to equip, and, and we talk about this as a staff. How do we equip other people to do this? We equip his people for works of service. We try to build them up. We try to continually build unity of the faith. But the idea here is maturity. Is maturity. Now we use this word a lot. Now, if you grew up in the Church of God or if you grew up in a Wesleyan tradition, you probably heard the term um, sanctification. It's a great word, holiness. And if you're really old school, it's Christian perfection. We don't use that term anymore. And uh, I talk about, most of the time, I talk about holiness every single Sunday. I just don't call it that. Most of the time, it's maturity. But that's in line, in, aligned with what we're talking about here, is this idea of maturity in the faith is really your sanctification, is your discipleship, it is your growth. Your growth into being like Jesus, that's discipleship. See, sometimes I think we, we believe that discipleship is just this set of rules that we follow. No, maturity is to become like Jesus. That's the whole point, to learn to act like him, to learn to think like him, to learn to love like him, right? And I pray this prayer often, just in my own life and with other people. That church or The world doesn't need more churches or pastors. It needs more people who love and act like Jesus. I believe that day in and day out, and that's what this is about, and this is where Paul is going with this idea. So we have these, this five-fold ministry, but the aim is to get people to mature in Christ, them to mature. And then he goes on to um, some practical matters um, in verse 25 through 32. Really highly recommend that you read your way through this because they're concrete behaviors and what he says here is put off the old self and put on the new self. Now, I want you to hear something. If you have never heard this before, I want you to hear this. Jesus didn't come to make you better. He came to make you new. Not better, new. Put off the old self, put on the new self that is available to you in Jesus. That's discipleship. Now that doesn't mean that you're jettisoning everything about yourself, and I'm not suggesting that at all. But there is a newness that Christ brings, not to just make you better. It's not like he's... Jesus is not the the advertisement which slaps a sticker that says new and improved on it. Mm -mm. It's just new. It's something brand new. You are something new on the shelf. And I think that's an important of this idea of discipleship. And in this whole um, segment of Scripture, he says things like, speak truthfully. Don't steal work. Now, if we could only teach the federal government to do that, that would be great. Ooh, did I say that out loud? Rid yourself of bitterness and anger and rage and malice and those kinds of things. And I'll tell you why. Bitterness will eat you from the inside out. And then he he finishes by saying, be kind and compassionate to one another. I think we just need a little bit more of that. Be kind and compassionate. And and I think about this, you know, when I when I read through that particular section of Ephesians, right right there towards the end of Ephesians chapter 4. That's how I want to act. Frankly, that's how I want other people to act too. I want people to, to be compassionate and to care about one another and take care of each other's needs when they, when they need it. And that's what the church is supposed to be. That's part of discipleship. And, and we have this, a life worthy of your calling. Boy, that sounds great, doesn't it? That you're called to be this kind of person, to be this This type of a disciple, it's compassionate and loving. You don't have all that extra baggage. The junk that we carry around. You know, and when reading through this, there's purpose here. There's work for us to do. There's good works that we're supposed to do. There's care, and and there's peace, and there's freedom, and there's hope, and there's all of that. And I'm like, if that's a life worthy of my calling, man, sign me up for that. But here's the tough question. Here's the tough question. You know we were going to get to a tough question at some point, right? Here's the tough question. Why is that so hard to find in the church? Now I'm not trying to be critical here of of, uh, of Thrive Church or any other church. I. I, I the point is, is that I'm reading something in the text. I'm reading Ephesians 4. You're going to read it too. And I'm like, if that's a life worthy of the calling, how come I don't see this more? I see it some places. There are some people who I think who have this worked out. God bless them. I want to hang out with them because I want to be like that. And you probably do too. There are just some people who are just naturally kind of this way. And they just ooze this out of I them and you want to hang out with them because they're living a life worthy of their calling. But I see it over and over in church after church, even churches I have pastored where I don't see a life worthy of calling. And I don't, I'm not trying to be judgmental on you, I see that in myself. Am I living the life worthy of, of my calling? I, you know, I wonder that. Do our lives actually reflect the things that are, we are reading in the text? And, and please understand, there is a mass exodus going out of the church among young people. And one of the main reasons why is I read this stuff in the Bible and I see my church and they don't match up. Yeah, I felt that way. Often. And I think there comes a point where I'm like, I'm just tired of it. I want my church, I want my own life to match up with the things that I'm seeing in the text. Because this is real. If it's not real, then why are we here? Right? So why is it so hard to find these things? Some do get it. Or we catch glimpses of this, too. Little moments um, when you th- see things that are truly as they should be. And for whatever reason, those videos tend to go viral on social media. And you watch them, and you get a lump in your throat, and you wonder why. Because you're witnessing a life worthy of the calling. Just a little glimpse of it, and there's a part of your heart that longs for it. I want that. I want to be part of something like that. I, I've noticed this in, in the past too. Um, I, I often see churches get excited about a couple things, especially in Ephesians chapter 4. One of them is the whole, you know, apest type of five-fold ministry. Um, this kind of came back to the forefront eh, probably about 10, 15 years ago. And it was a big deal in the seminaries. And, and, you know, you took a little test and tried to figure out which one you were. You know, which one am I? Am I an apostle, or am I a, you know, which one are you? And then we, you know, you can have that kind of conversation, and then you figure, well, if we can get three other people, maybe we can have a church. You know, I don't, you know, I don't know, how that works. But we get all excited about the fun stuff like that, um, or churches often get excited about the moral stuff. By the way, in in uh, um, chapter four, verse fifteen, is the famous passage. Instead, speaking the truth in love. And have you ever noticed that most people who quote that passage are much more interested in the truth part than they are in the love part? Look, if the Holy Spirit is calling you, is prompting you to speak a little bit of truth into someone's life, the first thing you ought to pray for is love, not truth. Oh God, help me. Be loving about this. And... Do not ever confront somebody with the truth unless you're being prompted by the Holy Spirit to do it. It is not your business what their sin is. You are not qualified to make that judgment. You, however, may be qualified by the Holy Spirit to call attention to it. But it had better be a Holy Spirit thing and not something that you just got an ax to grind over. Does that make sense? Speaking the truth. We get all excited about that one. I'm going to love them enough to tell them that they're sinning. mm not your job. Yeah. And of course, then you've got all of the do's and don'ts at the end of the chapter. The one that you're going to read today when you get home. You're going to read through this. Why is it that it is so easy to f- see all of the things that someone else is doing wrong? We think that a worthy life comes from either focusing on or finding my place in ministry, or we think a worthy life is helping others to do right and to avoid wrong. Jesus made it pretty clear that you're supposed to deal with the plank in your own eye first. Who got quiet in here? That's an important part of this. A worthy life, is it really about finding my place? Is it really about helping others to do the right thing or avoid the wrong? So here's the insight. Here's the thing I want you to remember. Andy Stanley says that the congregation will remember 20% of the things that that the preacher says. Here's the 20% I want you to remember when you walk out the door. Okay, If you get nothing else, here it is. Here it is. You cannot have a worthy life without being adopted and having access to God. In other words, very simply, you cannot have Ephesians 4 without Ephesians 1. You cannot have Ephesians 4, a life worthy of the calling, if you don't understand what that calling is. Adopted and access to God. Is this making sense? This is huge. It's the place, I think, that we miss over and over again. We want to jump to the daily living. We want to jump to the pragmatic. But in order to have the pragmatic, you must understand that it comes from somewhere. It comes from some part of life that's lived. And you know what? Our model actually bears this out. Here it is. Ephesians 1 is the bottom part of the triangle. Ephesians 4 is the top part of the triangle. If you want to see your life being lived as a disciple, you have to spend your time at the bottom of the triangle. You need to live there. If you genuinely want life to look like what you read in the Bible, you have to live at the bottom part of this triangle. Listening to what God says and responding to him. Listening and responding. And you know, that's the essence of discipleship. Discipleship comes down to listening and responding. I can't make it more simple than that. And the more I read and the more I I see in the, um, the disciples in the text and the disciples that I see in my own life, people are actually living out. They're listening and responding to God. Remember last year we spent a lot of time talking about the presence of God? This is what I'm talking about. The bottom part of this triangle is the presence of God, listening and responding, listening and responding. And here's the thing when you do that, you begin to know the Father's voice. I, I struggled with this myself. I see this all the time. People are like, well, I think God's prompting me, but I don't really know if that's His voice or not. Here's the deal write it down. God will either confirm it or deny it. That's okay. You're learning His voice. You're learning his voice. Listen, respond, listen, respond. God will confirm that. He wants you to grow. He wants you to live life, the top of the triangle, through the bottom part. He doesn't want you to try to do it on your own. That's why Jesus came. Listening and responding. You're going to hear a lot of stories in the next uh, few weeks. Um, about listening and responding Uh, there's some really cool stuff that's happening here at thrive church i can't say a whole lot about it yet because anyway but it's going to be exciting stay tuned i can hardly wait um but part of my own discipleship is is trying to spend spend time learning god's voice and listening to him um Last week, I had this really strong impression that we were supposed to pray for people who felt disconnected. This morning, actually, it started on Friday and it kind of grew until this morning. I really have the sense that the Lord wants us to pray for um, people who are sick, who are ill. Um, how many of you know somebody who's sick right now? <laughs> Maybe you got family members. Yeah, yeah. How many of you are sick? No, don't raise your hand. I'm <laughs> just kidding. So here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm, I'm just going to try to follow Jesus on this one. I'm going to go back there like I normally do. And um, uh, I think Kay's going to join me and James will probably be, be back there as well. Uh, if you are sick or you're afraid of getting sick or you've got a family member who's sick or you know about somebody who's sick, come on back. We want to pray. And so here's how we'll do it. If you know somebody who's sick, we're, we're going to have you stand in their stead and we are going to pray for them through you and just ask God to, to bring some healing. Here's, here's, the, here's the reason why. The text has told us that Jesus is in the business of healing. It's time to put our actions where our mouth is. If we actually believe that, then let's pray for the sick. We're going to trust God for the result, for the outcome, we're not going to take credit for it if he does heal them, so we don't have to take the blame if he doesn't. It's up to him. But that doesn't absolve us from the responsibility of praying. Does that make sense? So we're going to do that. Um, so if you, during the last song, uh, Tyler's going to come up and, and Susan are going to come up and lead. Um, which, by the way, um, if you get a chance, thank Tyler and Susan for doing that because Dan is out sick today uh, with both pneumonia and bronchitis. Because Dan doesn't do anything halfway. ever. upper part of the lung and lower part of the lung. Thank you very much. <clears throat> so we're going to pray for him, um, and there's some others that I'm aware of too. And maybe you, uh, maybe you know of, of somebody, hey, look, there's no pressure, but if there's uh, somebody that you want to pray for, bring him back and let's, let's together go before the one who heals the one who makes whole the one who mends the one who redeems and all of that we'll do that I have, I have a feeling the lord wants to do something today i don't i don't claim to understand what that means but i'm listening and i'm trying to respond so come on with me we're going to go a little crazy it'll be fun